I'm Dustin Zahn, and this is Trainwrecks. So, I've been recording a lot of these intros in the last day or two, and I'm getting pretty burned out on these things. Uh, I really hate talking into the mic, and I've gone through about a million takes, and I'm about to lose my mind, so I'm going to try and do it in one more take here and see what I can come up with. Bear with me. Today in the studio, we got Adam X. Dude's a legend, and if you haven't heard from him, you're going to learn all about it today. Adam's an interesting guy because, you know, he started off in the 90s. He's brothers with Frankie Bones, and together they played all over Europe and North America. Uh, They started a record shop called Sonic Groove. They also have a record label under the same name, which is run solely by Adam at the moment, and that's still releasing quite a bit of music as we speak. After the record shop closed in, I think it was a few years ago, uh, it enabled Adam to move over to Berlin where he could throw a series of parties and try out a few projects that probably weren't the best idea in America. You know, the crowds in Europe are a little bit more forward-thinking in some regards. Uh, so we're going to hear about all of that. We're going to talk about his time with uh, CLR, his transversible wormhole. He just is recently putting out an album on lies. So you're going to hear about that. And, you know, there's a lot of stories to talk about over the years, and we're going to get into it. I'm really happy to have him on the show because he's a guy that I actually never got to meet in person while I was living in the United States. Uh, it wasn't until we were both living in Berlin that I would randomly run into him at parties or clubs and while we were both kind of taking it easy and letting everybody else go nuts, it kind of gave us the time to chat and find out a little bit more about each other. Over the course of time, I'd see him at parties, and the next thing I know, we'd sit there and chat for an hour or two. Things about music, graffiti, life in general, uh, you know, family members that drive us nuts, all kinds of shit like that. So he's a good guy. He's got a lot of interesting things to say, and I'm... Like always, really happy to have him on the show. Uh, Let us know what you think. Enjoy. Hey, Adam, thanks for coming by. No problem, Dustin. So um, I guess let's start at the beginning real briefly. You started in 1990 in New York, right? That's correct. Yeah, and then um, how long was it before things really started picking up for you? Was it pretty quickly or did it get... Months. (laughs) Months. <laughs> Months, really? Months, and then yeah. you were just hitting it hard? or Yeah, I mean, I was already aware of what was going on musically with stuff in 89. I mean, I didn't really have a... I, didn't, I couldn't put a name to a lot of the stuff that I was hearing, but I was already out buying, like, Little Louis cassettes and stuff like that, you know, like when, when French Kiss came out, like, in, in 89. And I was listening to a lot of radio and stuff as well, like the, the mix shows that night, like Tony Humphreys and stuff. And then, you know, my brother was already doing, like, some radio shows, mm-hmm. like some major stuff in New York on, like, uh, what was it, Kiss 97, which it was back then. He would get sometimes, like, the club night on a weekend. So, you know, I was getting mixtapes from him. And then actually, uh, me and one of my graffiti buddies, Reese, Todd James, a very well-known writer from New York City, artist, uh, we used to go out to a club that Lenny D and my brother used to play in uh, Staten Island in the, in the 80, in uh, like 89, maybe even in 88 a bit. And then they were playing a lot of old, like, you know, hip house and uh, acid house. And, you know, there was probably some techno in there, but, you know, we weren't really calling that techno yet. You yeah. Know, it was still a house under the house umbrella. Yeah, I mean... Um you know, even to this day, I guess now you got it. You got mostly your sound narrowed down to a few aliases, but you know, I know that 
even in the years since I've been living in Berlin, you've done various sets from like industrial based things to techno to even like house and panorama bar or something like that. And, uh, now I definitely want to ask more about those later and see what, you know, where you kind of pulled the inspiration for each of those names. But so at, at this time in the nineties, were you, what were you kind of playing like at like the storm raves and stuff like that? Or let me the- go back into 1990 for a minute. Um, the, the record shop that my brother opened was, uh, opened in April. Of, I guess it was the 19th of uh, 1990. And for the first couple of weeks I didn't work there. And then he had to go away and I was getting in a lot of trouble with police and graffiti stuff. And I was really trying to find a job and trying to get out of trouble for a little while. Uh, he offered me a, a chance to work in the shop and uh, on a weekend when he was away in Europe, I think he went away for like a week or something. I don't, I don't remember exactly how many days. So I came into the shop to help the other guy there that, that was running the shop with him at the time, this guy Ray Love. And, um, you know, I, I started working there and then like, you know, you play records for people when they came in the shop or Ray was playing records for people. And then automatically I started identifying a lot of the records now by name and label to what I was actually hearing on mixtapes. So I was pretty intrigued by that, and um, you know, from there it just kind of it kind of kept growing and growing very quickly. And when my brother came back, I mean, he actually needed my help in the shop, and I was just really into it. I was just really, you know, loving what I was hearing, and, and just, you know, my brother had this vision. He was showing us videos of like these raves in England, you know, this uh, energy parties that he played out with like twenty five thousand people in an aircraft hangar. And my mind was just blown. It was just like, especially back then, if you see videos of the raves from, from England, it was such a mixed breed of people, black, white. You had everything there. It was like, and then coming from New York where there was still a lot of racial violence and stuff like that and where, you know, you know, different people, different backgrounds didn't really mix up that much. You know, it was really impressive to, to see that. And that also gave me a lot of insight on this music and, and what my brother's vision was to break this music in America, you know. And so there, I, I really just picked up into it, and you know, I started collecting records pretty quickly. And then I, I went out to LA to uh, to meet a friend, a mutual friend of my brother and I. And he was a promoter out there, and I was buying records. And I went to a couple parties, and the guys weren't mixing out there. I was going to these gigs, and they were the music was okay, the selection was okay, but they, they weren't beat mixing. And I'm sitting there, and I'm thinking, well, I told I, I was like I could do this, and I said to my friend, these guys don't mix, I could do this. And he says, well, if you want to do it, I can get you a gig tomorrow. Hmm. Next thing I know, I'm playing to a thousand people, and this uh, I think the place was Park Plaza Inn. It was. Uh, a party done by Stephen Levy, who owned Moonshine Records, but this is before okay. he was, you know, he was a big promoter out there at that time. And I mean, the minute you did that and you're in a plane to a thousand people and you have the acetate of Joey Belcham Energy Flash that no one ever played in America, yeah. Joey let me bring it out there uh, to, nice. to, to pass the letter front DJ with. Um, I mean, my mind was blown. I was, I was hooked after that. And that was, you know, that was my, my entryway in. And then my friend brought me back with my brother to play towards the end of the year in 1990 for a really big, like, warehouse party. And then, you know, it just, it just steamrolled from there, you know. So you basically would just hit the ground running. Yeah, it was just, you know, it's, it's crazy. I never expected to be a DJ. It just happened. It was like I, I didn't plan it for three, four years and mixing. And I, one day I'm going to get my big break, you know, it just, yeah. just did it. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of what the story seems to be like for a lot of the people, especially the ones that are, you know, more successful. They never really had, like, this dream of getting famous or anything. Like, Chris Liebian was telling a story about how I think the reason that he started DJing is because someone didn't show up one night, and they're like, we need you to come in and just put some records on, and the next thing you know, I mean, he's not look at him now. You know what I mean? It's, it's <laughs> yeah. always just the story of, like, 
being at the right place at the right time. No, but then there's some guys, friends of mine, like like Beltram, for instance. I mean, Joey, I know through graffiti, and Joey was definitely way into DJing. I mean, he used to paint on the trains, DJ Poez, his graffiti tag. And, you know, when I reconnected with him through techno, through my brother in 1990, I mean, he had already records out. And, uh, you know, he it took him, you know, a year or two where he was blowing up to the point where he was going to Europe. So some guys came in a little bit slower and, and took their time. But mm-hmm. I think for him also, he made a, a really good mark in his beginning by doing that because the records he put out were already so good his first records i mean they're still not in my opinion they're still not dated oh yeah so, i mean you know, some of his stuff is and this is this day yeah i mean incredible incredible you know? records you know so i mean let's uh you know new york in the 90s was the storm raves were they the most popular parties at the time or was or am I do I need to be corrected here? No, they were the first actual raves in New York at the at the time. There was okay. no one else doing raves. Um we started doing parties in in an apartment called uh, uh I'm trying to remember the name. It's like ten ten fifty Coney Island Avenue. And it was just in a in a guy's apartment that was gutted out and there was nothing in there. I mean he had some furniture but he would take it out when we would do an event. And, it, you know, it went from 50 people to, you know, everybody's partying on ecstasy or whatever, 50 people. And then mm-hmm. it's going to 100 people. And then it just kept steamrolling. The parties just kept getting bigger and bigger, you know. And before you knew it, this is a 90, in like late 90, actually. And by like, you know, 91, by summertime, we're doing 500 people in like junkyards behind like freight tracks and, mm-hmm. and in an abandoned section of Brooklyn and Canarsie area to 92, where we're doing 5,000 people in warehouse parties. I heard about you know? And then in 91, also, you know, the Limite, they started to, you know, push a bit of techno in the back room. One of the guys that was doing parties there, he had went to, to England with my brother and Lenny D, and he started his own thing, and his DJs were coming in the shop, and they were buying records from us, and they started their, their techno thing, but that was the club thing. And actually, Frankie was already playing in clubs in New York. Uh, you know, he was playing... Um, he, he was doing some nights in New York in, in 1990 in this place called Quick, which became Vinyl later, and actually used to be I think it used to be this club area back in the day, um, okay, back in the in the 80s. And so we, he was already playing like straight techno through the whole night. You'd hear like everything from like LFO on Warp, Tricky Disco, all the all this classic era stuff from Age of Love, all that stuff from from 90. Mm-hmm. And then, but we were never really connected with the club scene that much. It was like you know that wasn't the vision that we had. We had a vision of doing warehouse parties and, and illegal parties, you know, outside. And so the Limite did its thing, you know, it was just the club thing. Mm-hmm. And actually they got, they just got super jealous of what we were doing. We didn't really care that what they were doing. We had no problem with them. We used to actually it was go to just their different nights. worlds, right? We, we go to their nights. No problem. If we wouldn't have a party, we go there and hang out. No, not a problem at all, but they hated on us. They, they wanted to be. Well, you were the ravers, the, you know? the, the, the 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 prick that used to do the party there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, who's got probably mafia hits on him now for for being a snitch, this little snitch bitch. Uh. Um, right? And uh, yeah, oh no, he he totally snitched out the owner of Limite. I mean, he had he's uh he's he's he had to go in hiding he snitched out like some major major mafia people they like had hits on it so what happened with this owner um for those that don't know what's that what happened the owner of limelight the the owner got um i don't know if i don't remember if he did some jail time but they threw him out of the country he was from from canada and he also owned palladium in the tunnel and and, uh club usa I mean, Peter Gation was a very well-known figure in in the Mm -hmm. club scene in New York. He was kind of had the monopoly. He was the kingpin, right? But uh, this guy, Lord Michael, who was the promoter for his night, was the one that was doing a lot of the bad bad shit 
because he was just a jealous motherfucker, basically, mm-hmm. you know, and, um, you know, it came down to the point where he had my brother set up and, and uh, mafia guys jumped my brother in front of his house and hit no him with a baseball shit. bat and pistol whipped him and had stitches all on his head from it. And yeah, it was really some crazy, crazy shit happened back then. You Jesus. Know? Um, and this is only because when we would do our parties, especially like in 92, you know, we would have so many people at our warehouse party on a weekend that nobody went to the, the limelight. So they, oh, yeah, they, they, get they pissed. were just getting pissed, you know. I've I've seen that happen in South America. I was at parties and a you know, some guns came out and people were pissed because people were not at the right clubs or venues and it gets dicey when big money comes in into play. Like I I don't really have an interest in some of these, you know, more skeptical countries where you know that the events are being funded by drug money because that's when things are a little I don't know. Too close for comfort. I think for back me. in the day, it seemed like a lot of stuff was was fronted, especially on the West Coast, with drug money. I don't know. And and what you said on the West Coast, because I played out there a lot in the early '90s. I mean, me and my brother were out there like at least a couple a couple times every season of the year. You know, like with, I yeah. almost could say I mean, every month, pretty much. I mean, let's be honest. In the early and mid '90s, and that maybe not the later parties, but the first parties were basically drug funded. You know what I mean? Like. Once you build your little nest egg, you can use that. But I can always you know. say about some of the sketchiness of some of the promoters. You know, I mean, well, I saw yeah, some but... sketchy stuff out in L.A. and it was they were really calling the cops on each other. If there was a party on the same night, it didn't even have to be on the same night. They were yeah. it was constantly it was the same shit each other like Chicago out, you know? too. Yeah, oh, Chicago know? was really. Bad. They would like uh, you know hack each other's voicemails and send people to the other party and you know call on the cops. We, and we we had a good vibe outside of Limelight in New York. We had a very good vibe amongst the the promoters in New York we were kind of like the nucleus in New York and we were friends with all the other surrounding promoters and you know they were all you know a lot of the promoters I mean for for me to say techno back then was from the street for the most part it was all street kids that were involved in doing parties and people it was more of a house scene there at that point Still, right? Where, in New York? Yeah. Well, that was separate from what we were doing, but the guys that were doing the other raves, like in the Bronx and in Queens, you know, maybe a little bit later, like 93, 94, into like 98, 99, everybody was kind of together. Everybody kind of worked together. There was no drama. Nobody called the cops on each other. It wasn't like That's on good. the West Coast. We had a we had a good vibe out here, and I think after a while, Lima just gave up on that shit, too. It was just they had an issue with us for these couple years when that promoter was working there, mm-hmm. you know? You want to bring your mic a little closer? Yeah, yeah. Stand. Um, yeah, I mean, it seems like crazy times. I was, you know, I just had an interview with uh, Kurt X from Drop Base. He was telling me that he went to the last storm rave, and he said that was mental. It was kind of insane and almost like maybe in a little bit of a darker way, like just a really aggressive, like people were going really fucking mental. I wasn't there. He, oh, you he would know more than me about no. it. He would because I was with me and Heather. I had a gig at... In May Day here in Berlin. It was the first okay. time I came to Berlin. I played May Day number three. It's kind of crazy. I played uh, like basically a half a mile from where I live now, wow. <laughs> which is really weird. If you would have told me in 92 I'd be living down the street, I'd be like, what the fuck are you talking about? Uh-huh. <laughs> in 25 years, right? Mm-hmm. Or, or more, whatever it is, 23. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I, we missed that one. And I remember when me and Heather left New York, we got – there was um, – there was a nor'easter, you know, it's just yeah. this kind of hurricane. It's not really, it's, it's like a tropical storm, 
But it's it's the one storm coming from the west coast. I mean, the Midwest towards the east, and the other storm coming up from the south. And when it meets in New York, it does this crazy shit <laughs> that you you don't know what's going to happen. You could have a blizzard. You know, no. you don't really know. And so it was one of those storms that happened. And we, I was surprised the plane even took out a JFK. It was crazy. I remember the, t- the plane was really rocking when it flew out, and we were shocked that we were able to get out. And somehow my brother managed to pull his party off after the storm, and uh, you know was a. Uh, but did he get stuck? He that, did. He yeah. did. He got. He and barely then, got there, and you know the numbers weren't as high as the previous numbers because they, you know it, it was during this crazy week of the storm this weekend. So I heard the party was good, but I actually recently saw a video of it. And I don't know if I would have liked it. It was they were playing a lot of Gabber on it, and and the thing is, is that Gabber came out was got really big in the scene. Even in May Day, when I played May Day, it was massive. That was the biggest thing there. And mm-hmm. I was always in the hard after techno at that time period. I didn't play Gabber. I was not into it. I liked a couple of the first Gabber records, like on Rotterdam. I thought they were cool, funny, whatever. No. But it was a no- it was novelty to me, and so I didn't never got into it. You know? Yeah, I felt and, the same way when Breakcore took over uh, over Hardcore. You know, like all of a sudden the hardcore parties that I was going to, it's just like you know Breakcore. I'm like, break what the fuck is this all about? You know? Yeah. But, the um. So the Gabber really just got big because the last rave we had did prior to that was in uh i think it was in september of 92 and the gabba really wasn't out yet i mean the music was fucking hard at that time it was like 145 150 beats per minute a lot of belgian techno even like richie horton like circuit breaker track x which is probably one of my favorite tracks of all time all this is a fucking 909 but you know, it was uh, just this high energy. Hammering. You know, we were young, you know. We were in our 20s. We had that testosterone, you know. We were just ready to, to go at it for the bodies. It's, it's still like that these days, you know. Sometimes I would get upset, you know, and I really, I just kind of, the light bulb went off in my head about a year ago because I would show up and the DJ that's playing before me is just freaking hammering it, you know, harder than I'm going to play at all. And I'm kind of pissed because it doesn't leave me anywhere to go. It's not that I can't play good records, but like I'm not going to have that kind of energy. And then I thought about it. I'm like, well, that's what I was doing when I was 18, 20. I just wanted to hammer it all night too. You know what I mean? Like that's just what you're into it yeah, at that yeah. point, you know? So and, and Even though the BPMs aren't even that fast. I played with somebody last week and they were playing like 136 and I was like, shit, I play like 127, 128. Yeah, exactly. I play as hard as him. I play even harder because the kick drums are bigger at that, yeah. at that tempo. But... The, you know, I was like, hmm, you know, and, but I saw that the crowd got tired pretty quick also. I mean, it was a weekday gig, so, you know, when it, it, he had the energy for a minute and then the energy went down a little bit. And then, you know, then I came on and I was like, okay, now what to do? <laughs> you know, yeah, sometimes totally. you get stuck in that spot for a minute. You got to rebuild. Definitely. So um, let's get back on track here. Getting towards the end of it, or at least the, the early days you were out in New York until roughly. When did you come over? When the Transversible Wormhole Project was taken no, off? No, that was or? even. I came before. I came in 2007. Okay, so 2007. So until that point, uh, you were kind of working at the shop. You're hitting Europe. You're touring the States a lot. I give um, you a, good, a very good timeline. 2004, Sonic Groove closed in Manhattan, October mm-hmm. 2000, 2004. For the next two years, I was trying to figure out what to do. Minimal was very, very big, as you remember. Mm-hmm. And I was never part of the scene. I was never into this music. I mean, I can't say I was never into it. In the in the very beginning of that genre, like 97, 98, the Mike Inc. 
Studio One, Profane Records, sure, that's Baby Ford, PAL. I mean, that was a you know even the first early Perlon records. I have all those like Dimby Man, uh, you know, Good Morning Eyeball. I mean, it's a great mm-hmm. records, you know, from like ninety eight, ninety nine period. But for me, that music was stuff I bought from my record collection, but nothing I was ever really interested in playing out at gigs. Yeah. You know, you put it on a mixtape, whatever. Put it on at home or something. But it was never the. It never had the energy of of the type of stuff that I would play at gigs. So. Um, you know, in 2004, this music was huge now, and I just didn't jump on that at that ship when it got big. I went and called my own niche was with industrial music. I got into the industrial scene. I kind of left the techno scene for a while. I was going to more industrial parties in New York, like, you know, electronic body music parties with industrial mixed. And I can't say that all the music that was being played at those parties I liked, but it was new to me. I, I didn't, wasn't very familiar with that music. I knew a little bit about it from the early 90s. But it wasn't something I had much knowledge on. And for me, it was interesting. And I felt like I could fuse this music together a bit with techno. And there were some people that were already doing it, like, you know, that I could identify with, like Tom, uh, Terrence Fixima. He did it really well. Yeah, he did it really great, you know. And then Thomas Heckman. I won't say that they, were, they weren't my introduction into that. Sure. I was in, my introduction came from people from that scene, for the most part. And one of the guys that worked in my shop, Reed Truth, uh, who was from that scene originally. And so, you know... I just said, this is the route I'm going, you know? And then I, I discovered that outside of that, EBM and industrial was the rhythmic noise angle of industrial, which was the more modern sound, which was kind of like big. power noise and yeah, whatnot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This stuff's great. Yeah, man, that, you know? yeah that was, uh, there was kind of a nice little movement about that around the, the era you were talking about. I would play at a, uh, there was a local college radio station in minneapolis and this guy would always invite me to come down and play some banging techno and some industrial stuff and then he would play some you just call it you know like power noise or whatever in the meantime and it'd be like what is it i don't know 145 150 but still kind of pumping um yeah like kind of apex toward like old school like those mescam united remixes yeah pretty uh, pretty cool stuff it wasn't too it was just the right amount of like aggression, but not too dark. Because you know, a lot of industrial just became dark trance, basically. Yeah, you know yeah, what I'm yeah. Saying? That stuff so, is horrible. That was. Yeah. I had to deal with a lot of that when I went out, and that's not what I was looking for. I was actually looking for more of the. Uh, they say power noise in America, and it's rhythmic noise in Europe. Okay, power noise. It's because it's power electronics, which is just noise, right? Mm-hmm. So that's uh, some people get a little confused for that. So I figure I'll, I'll clarify the the difference there. Good enough. Right? Um, but yeah, you know, it was. Um, it was even hard to find the rhythmic noise, power noise thing for a minute at the parties. Like they, I'd go and they would play a, a couple of the hits from that scene. Like you'd hear one or two records. It was like, I don't know, so a lot of times when I would go to those industrial EBM gigs, I don't even like to say industrial because they weren't really playing like Coil and Throbbing Gristle and Neubaden and, and Esplendo mm-hmm. Geometric or SPK. They, were, they, were, they call industrial in America like ministry, which yeah, is, to yeah. me is kind of like rock almost, industrial rock Ministry maybe. for sure. You know, Nine Inch Nails and, and, and of that stuff of that Front- Two four two or skinny puppy. Yeah, and in New York, you know what? Front two forty two is not considered industrial. They call it EBM. It's electronic body music. Okay. Same. Yeah. It's it's like it's weird. It, it, skinny, skinny puppy gets classified as being in both genres. It's a, it's a mix. It's like it, sometimes it's like it, it's all confused up like techno can be yeah. sometimes. You know? I remember like. I don't know, 10 years ago or something when the Skinny Puppy album came out and they were freaking rapping and all yeah, that. And I was just yeah, like, oh, nah, my God, nah. man. So the rhythmic noise, though, was, 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 yeah, when I heard that stuff, I was like, this is, the, this is the kind of techno where it should be, but techno's not at. So I started yeah. playing a lot of that. And I would bring that. I would play that stuff at techno parties. The problem is with a lot of the rhythmic noise stuff is that I found that they didn't have really big bass drums. The kicks were always... It was a, a bit thin. Because they're not coming from the techno scene, so they're not... They're not 
focusing on the kicks the it's way the techno produces. You know, uh, you know, it's still sometimes like that when I hear productions from that scene. Though yeah. I think it's changing a bit more. Yeah, someone's just got to give them a nine oh nine, and then it's pretty yeah. dead on. I noticed that was the first thing I noticed when this guy's showing me all this stuff. Like, oh, this is what I'm into. I'm like, yeah, it almost sounds like techno minus the nine oh nine, basically. You know, um, but yeah, I mean that's interesting because at this point. Well, I don't think you're quite getting into the transversible wormhole project yet. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Let, doing... me get, let me go back to where we were. So 2004, the shop closed. And then for those two years, I was, you know, fluctuating around in America trying to find gigs, you know, playing a lot of industrial parties. Techno gigs were kind of far and few. Kind mm-hmm. of hard to pay the bills in New York, especially living in a city like New York for that time period, right? I, I argue so. that it was more or less kind of dead at that point some people like anthony parasoli tell me no man new york was always going on no, you just dead, didn't know where you're playing dead, dead. <laughs> anthony i love anthony but it was dead there was nothing going on in fact in the early 2000s the only thing going on in new york was the bar scene there was a lot of like people were playing yeah exactly you know it was a lot of that stuff and 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 when tronic finished on the monday night like i guess that was around 2002 three there was a, a really huge void in new york there was no yeah. techno being there there was hard, there was very rarely like function would try to do something every now and then he wouldn't try he would do something like, like limelight you know, even the minimal scene wasn't really that big. It wasn't until around 2005, six when Bunko started to really start happening. And then by 2007, Black Market came on. Yeah. But it was still all minimal. There was no real techno. There was nobody was playing proper techno. Yeah. That, that's a fact. There was no one playing proper techno. So I got bored of just New York, the scene, the amount of money it cost me to live there. It was like either I go to Europe. And I, well, the thing was, is that I actually came here for some gigs and I played, I, I came to Berlin and I played and when I went to Schoenefeld to go to the next destination, I wasn't going back to New York. I forgot where I bounced to. I didn't, didn't want to leave. And it was the first time that I had really been somewhere that I didn't want to leave because I was so, such a New Yorker that mm-hmm. I was like, I always wanted to be home in New York. I always loved New York and could be somewhere else for a long period of time. New yeah. York was New York, you know, for me. And now I realized, like, wow, I don't want to. I, I don't. I don't want to leave this place. So I thought, let me come back and check it out again. Mm-hmm. I knew somebody here, a friend of mine, uh, that my friend Nadia, and she invited me. She said I could. I could stay with her and and see how I, how I feel about mm-hmm. it. And I did that for a couple of weeks, and I was I was hooked. I was like, I'm coming. And I, I was connected with my friend Nadia, who's the girlfriend of Monolith on my label, who's one of the EBM pioneers. I mean, he did uh, like absolute body control in the, in the early 80s, was a yeah. member of the clinic, Insect. And so I came over and was playing, you know, I played for her, her parties and was kind of connected with the industrial scene because Minimal was still big here in Berlin. And Techno really wasn't big here. Yeah. You know, it still wasn't happening. I mean, you could go to Burkhan and maybe like Ben and Marcel – yeah, or Bangla, they would play it. They were playing techno, but they weren't playing every weekend. So not every weekend were the DJs playing techno there. I mean, I remember going, you know, to Berghain since the beginning, and there was a lot of minimal in the main room mm-hmm. there. You know what I mean? Like they were having uh, a lot of, you know, I don't know necessarily like the prolonged guys, but I remember like someone else who was from Philadelphia. He would play there. You'd have like I think Marco Corolla tried it a time or two. Like there was definitely some formulative years where they had to figure out what was working best yeah, for them. Totally. Like at that point, I think the new Trezor mm-hmm. opened up and they were probably, as far as I know, one of the most, uh, techno like venues in town at the, at yeah, the moment. Yeah. Trezor opened up like right, like three months after I moved here. And, um, 
it didn't really take off. For, it didn't really Tesla really no. didn't take off to a couple of years ago. Actually, started. Yeah, to, I to, mean, to, build, to get back into its own. You know, they had a lot of drama there with people that were working there, and uh, you know, it was just it wasn't it wasn't drama because people just weren't going there because techno wasn't that big. They just didn't have. Mm-hmm. They had to fill a, a club two floors, you know, and then you have Burkine, and there's just not enough people in techno going around. And I came, and in within four months, I had met the owner of Maria. I was at uh-huh. a gig, and uh, I was at the, at the club one night, and a friend of mine introduced me to him. And I said, hey, man, I have this really good idea I want to do for a party. Maybe you would back it. And, he, and I told him what I wanted to do, and I said, I want to do like this EBM. And I, I, and I, when I say EB, I, I'm pronouncing B as yes. in body music. I'm Electri- talking about EDM. Yeah. <laughs> not to you, but to people that are no, listening. No, a lot of people confuse it too, so yeah. it's worth so I want to make sure people clarifying. Don't, don't do that. So I went to the owner and I you know, told him that I, I had this, this idea for a party in mind to do this EBM techno thing. And that I wanted to book like Thomas Heckman, the horrorist, and me on a night. Mm-hmm. And um, he was up for it. He gave me the budget to do it. And I teamed up with my friend Nadia, who was doing the biggest industrial parties called Schlagstrom in Berlin. Mm-hmm. And we teamed up together and we called the party Crossing the Parallel, which was this it was about crossing the parallel of industrial and EBM music and techno. Mm-hmm. And we did the party at Maria, and the first one we did really well. We had like 700 people at it. Mm-hmm. And we did maybe like five more after that. I had like Surgeon playing with some EBM acts from Belgium and mixing it up. I had Doppler yeah. Effect. I booked Doppler Effect for the first time in like 10 years. They wow. had not played anywhere. Their first gig back was for me. Wow. Because right? I know Gerald from, you know, from, uh, from Detroit and whatnot. And they hadn't played. He might have done one gig somewhere around, but he had not, they had not played in Berlin and they were not doing any tours. And it was amazing to have them play. I was, my mind was blown that I was able to, to book that. You know, yeah. I mean, and you know, it was a good time period. Nobody was doing anything. I had no competition. I wanted to do like a like sort of this, uh, you know, IDM kind of techno night where I booked like Black Dog, B12, and Kirk DiGiorgio. I mean, that's like the classic Warp Records night. And, yeah. You know, I did that. The owner was just giving me budgets to do whatever I wanted to do. I had another series of parties there that were not involved with industrial music where I booked a lot of electro, like, you know, Lego Welt and Man Assist and, and mm-hmm. stuff like this. So this was a, a really fun period for me because I had no other places to play in Berlin. No one was really booking me. Yeah. But this owner was letting me do what I wanted to do when I had my own residency now. So. It's pretty great when you can pick and choose who you want to play with you. I think if you would ask any DJ who's touring, aside from... The obvious wanting more money and more gigs, they'd probably say like, "I want to bring my friends with me." You know what I mean? Right, like, right, right. Uh, that's awesome. You know, it was great. I did thirty events there, man, and the last one was the big finale. It was Mono Lake, TL one, TL one hundred one live for the first time. Like they played one time at Wax Room for like fifteen minutes. Yeah. I had the first full hour set from them ever, uh, and then I also had uh, Orfex play. It was the first time they they played. Was that in like five years ago? Yeah, it was about five six years ago. I'm, you know, I don't know if I. I was either going to go there or I did. If I did, I don't remember, to be honest. But I, I remember that party popping up on my radar. It was, a, it was a great one, man. And, I mean, right after that, then Grounded Theory started coming out. I had them first. I always tell them that. <laughs> Good friends. Um, and then they came out. And then they, you know, they were the next party that was really you know, helping break the scene here in Berlin. And at, at that point, I was like, Maria was, a, was not in a good situation to, to do events there. So I kind of backed out you know, a bit mm-hmm. from doing stuff there. And um, 
the owner was great. I, I, I love Ben who owned Maria. He was a great guy. But then he let p- other people take over the club, and then the club became something else and something else after that. And I don't know. I felt like I did what I needed to do because by that time, the techno scene was already on its way here. Now it was already – everything was starting to pop off in all the other places now yeah. that it started to get competitive with bookings. And, you know, you want to book people. They're already playing for another person. And I was – I had fun bringing people here who hadn't played here in, in a long time. Like even when I booked Beltram, he hadn't played in Berlin in like a year and a half. Damon Wilde hadn't been in here years when I booked him, you know. Yeah. So I was I was bringing a lot of people. Even Surgeon hadn't played in Berlin in two years when, when he played for me. So I, I I ran out of the the spark when everybody started playing and was like, oh well, you just played here last last month. I don't want to book you again, you know. It's kind of too soon, you know. Yeah. So that was that was that. And then during the same time period when I started to, to do the parties, it wasn't even. It was still maybe two years after because I started the parties in two thousand seven. In two thousand nine. I was looking to do something with, with making some tracks again. I was already making records. I had an album out, Adam X State of Limbo, that came out in 2008 on an Italian label that puts out a lot of industrial music. And uh, it was called State of Limbo, and it's on uh, Rust Blade. And, you know, it was, it was techno, electro, and EBM. It was a good, nice, vary, some rhythmic noise stuff on there. But, you know, it didn't catch anybody in the scene mm-hmm. because techno still wasn't really up there yet. It wasn't still a, a, a buying, a, a record buying market, you know? At this point for techno and vinyl sales were still down at that point, if you remember anyway, in that period, in that you know, it was yeah, it wasn't a bad period at that time. I mean, so. it's, it's arguably now worse than it was then, but it did have a little bit of an increase after that period. And now, I think no, it had a good, it had a good renaissance period in the 2009 period, but like 2007, eight was still really, really yeah. shabby. People, people were just the record shops were first being able to stick their head up and say, maybe we can make it through this. Because at 2004, when I when my shop closed five, it was dead. Oh, it was you know? bad. You it know? was terrible, man. It's wow. just funny because you know when I put out my first record, I want to say it was I got to look 2001, two something like that. It was considered a flop because it only sold a thousand copies. You know what I mean? <laughs> that was good then. Yeah. And, <laughs> wow. And and now today, if you told if you sold a thousand records, that would be insane. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, it's, uh, Digital, some people can really still sell a lot, but for the most part, nobody is. So but. in 2009, you know, I, be, I was going to Burkheim a lot at this time. I mean, I wasn't playing out a lot. It's still in, in, in Europe. You know, I go back to America occasionally. I have gigs here and there. But it was still this period where I was able to go a lot, out a lot in Berlin. I mean, what else was there to do, you know? It was, uh, <laughs> it's Berlin. Go it's out and happens. just go and enjoy, enjoy Burkheim. And it was a great period in Burkheim. I think, I, I think Burkheim was really interesting in that period. I mean, that's not to say that it's not interesting now for the new people that go there. But you could just feel something was bubbling up there with the music. You know, mm-hmm. you just knew something was about to fucking happen, you know, with techno. You could feel it. And everybody that was going there was just in awe. And, you know, I... At that time period, that was when Ben used to play these fucking crazy 12-hour sets well, there, man. Well, that's the thing. You know? you know, I moved here, and he they weren't quite keeping it open late yet. I remember right. one they of the first to... times. I remember one of the first times that uh, Ben and Marcel decided, like, they were just going to keep fucking going. And I went to grab my jacket at, like, 8 or 9 in the morning. I was pretty much done. And, uh, you know, I noticed five hours later, I'm still standing there on the floor with my jacket in my hand. You know what I mean? Because I came back up just because I was like, I got to go back up for a minute. And, uh, you know, we ended up staying there till nine or 10 o'clock that night. And that was 
epic at that time. I mean, now Burkheim stays open until Monday morning. Right, right. I mean, the but average... like to stay open till a Sunday night, that was Crazy. insane. Well, they know? used to go to normally like four o'clock in the afternoon. And well, then it, Panorama went, Bar especially. No, no, no. The afternoon on Saturday always went on on Sunday. Usually went to four in the afternoon, and that that was it though. Four was like the, the know, absolutely that was yeah. the ab- absolute latest that it was going. Maybe five. Because I remember the drum code parties actually back in the day kind of used to push the. Um, the bar each year like what they would do is i'd have to ask adam about it but like the the latest they ever stayed open at one point was three o'clock and then it was five o'clock and they would keep pushing it later and later and then finally ben and marcel and those guys <laughs> took it to a whole new level you know what i mean and now um you know in the last six months it's even gotten later whereas the place used to close at like eight o'clock because they wanted to have it quiet for the office Talked to Kyle Geiger, who closed this weekend, and I think he closed up shop at like eleven or eleven thirty, and the place was still full. Wow! I mean, it's it's insane on a that Monday, is you know. That is insane. So people got to go to work. <laughs> no, apparently kidding. these guys don't. <laughs> um. So you know, I I was going there to hear Ben and 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 Marcel play a lot, and you know, you know, you're there at seven thirty, eight o'clock on a Sunday morning, you know, and they start playing some deeper stuff, and then you just. I don't know. My my mind was just going back to when I used to play the uh, the after hour parties a lot in New York back in the in the early days. Because in the early nineties, like around ninety two, ninety three, on the outdoor parties when we were doing them outside in the summer, I always liked to play the closing set. I was always playing like this deeper trippy acid stuff in in the morning. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, I wanted to make some music like that. I was just hearing these guys doing what they were doing in the morning time, and I'm thinking, man, I want to make some just like real trippy ass stuff. Yeah, and that's how I started with the traversable worm. I just went home and started making stuff that I thought fit there, you know. Yeah, and it blew up. You know, it, it, I didn't know what was going to happen. I, I had a, I had made four tracks, and then I, I would say, I knew I was going to put out two singles. That was the plan. And uh, you know, after the second one, I saw that the the buzz was really strong on that, and so I was like, I'm, I. I told Dietrich in New York who was distributing, and I said, "This is going to happen because he didn't. He he was so unsure because of the sales with techno, mm-hmm. and I'm like, you got to believe me on this one, man.' I was like, yeah. I know what I'm doing because I had a, a couple records on the Sonic Group that I did with him that you know it was still hard to sell this stuff. You know, he's like this industrial stuff. I don't know, you know, minimal. Mm-hmm. It's, it's still this minimal thing. I'm like, you got to believe this is going to work. Chance, and yeah. I'm just, I know I'm I have, I'm onto something with this. Just yeah. just, just believe it." <laughs> It worked out well. Yeah. I mean, and then so the project came out on your label. It got relicensed by Chris Liebing, right, for CLR. Mm-hmm. Um, so basically, it all got re-released, and then it kind of ended with a epic remix package by, uh, you know, legendary people. And at that time, like, who was the who's who of techno and whatnot. And, um, I mean... What is there... Do you ever have plans to kind of revisit that at all, or... I I like I always like the mystique about the project, so it, you know it, you never know. Okay, That's fair the, enough. I, I like to we leave, can it, leave it, it there. You never know. Maybe one day you pop on Juno or Hardwax or Dex or DJ dot de yeah. or you know like, one of the well, biggest sites, <laughs> and then you just happen to see a new one. You know, yeah. you know. So, so a, a surprise is always. Good. Yeah, I'm I, not saying I'm going to do one. But, yeah, I know yeah. you've been busy. I mean, you got a new album coming out on Live soon from yeah, Ron Morelli. It's coming. Uh, yeah, that's uh, as uh, ADMX 71. 
that project's definitely more on the EBM tip that you were talking about. Yeah, this is my my pet project. I mean, you know what? I like I, you know traversable wormhole is was fun and all to do, and I can still do that stuff and mix it into what I do now as Adam X or as you know as ADMX seven one. I mean, on my Adam X album from last year, the Irreformable. I mean, there's some definitely deeper, more like sci-fi type tracks on there. Yeah. So I mean, it's not like I'm not making this kind of stuff. I'm just maybe I'm not using the name as much, you know, at the moment or. Mm-hmm. Um, but ADMX, I have a lot of fun to set ADMX 7.1 project because I really like making experimental music and down-tempo music. It's, it's nice to be able to make music and not have to think of about the dance floor. I yeah. think it's, it's harder to make dance floor techno because if you're striving to really do something original, it's just much more difficult. Oh, yeah, because it know? also has to work. It has to work. You know, if whereas- it's not working... And it's a dud on the dance floor, then it's a dud on the record shelves, you know? Exactly. And I mean, how many people really want to listen? How many people really listen to hard dance music at home all the time? I mean, yeah, in the car you do, when you're driving... You know, but at you'd be home, surprised. I know, but I, I, agree know, with I know, you. I know, I know, I agree. Because when I was younger, I listened to uh, yeah, I was listening to hard, crazy yeah, shit. Yeah, I buy it all like yeah, know, Glenn know, Wilson records and shit, and you know, I'm probably but, wrong on that thought. Maybe it's just my old age. <laughs> no, no, no. I, I mean, I agree. Like, I'm not going to put on anything hard but, at home anymore. But uh, yeah, you know, there's a lot of kids that are still into it, and not I, just kids, adults too. There's nothing wrong with that. But, I just, you know, I have a lot of, you know. You know, you know, sort of like movies in the head that you want to make a soundtrack for. Maybe it's my own personal movies, some things I'm thinking about. And when you're doing, um, when you're making kind of experimental stuff, and I hate to use the word experimental because is it really experimental? What the hell is experimental? But it's just you know, down tempo, you know, more chill, more relaxed stuff. You know, it's uh, you can go a lot of different places with it. You can really tweak around with sound design on on different levels that you can't really do on dance floor stuff. It's a lot of fun. Yeah, I mean, like for me, before I ever got into techno, it was all about experimental. I knew who Aphex Twin and Autechre were before Richie Hot and any of that shit. And you know, experimental, especially in the late. Right. Well, the early 2000s, it went really glitchy. Experimental was all about well, it shouldn't be about Western based music anymore actual drum sounds and it's all this wild and crazy shit and i guess there is a time and a place for that but experimental to me always meant not that it had to be wild crazy sounds but just that there's no borders like you could you know fuse any element together that you wanted and uh i think they're slowly coming back to that a bit i could say i actually never really liked glitch (laughs) i you know i didn't (laughs) either when like uh I guess for me, Autechre's Confield came out. That was, a, I can't remember if that was a single or an EP right now. But that was kind of, you know, everybody followed suit, especially after that, because they were like the, the kings of the scene. I'm, well, the, I'm, the, I'm the cliche Autechre fan. Oh, I, I, after, I, after I love them. After I was done. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, it, I, I, no I couldn't... that's the same with me. It, it ended after that. And then like Confield was an EP. And then Draft 730 came on. I'm like, this is, well, while I could appreciate it from, you know, whatever the producer sense i'm just like this is just uh mangled noise to me I, i'm still try repite for me it was like so beautiful it was experimental it still retained some like musicality to it and everything it had a hip-hop feel to it you could put it on at home and then like you know 
somebody put on Confield, and I'm just like, dude, you got to shut this fucking off. It's too intense for me right now. You know what I mean? So, I was kind of the same way with Apex Twin, though, after, after like, the 94, like, uh, era, like, on the on EP and, and that. After that, those releases, I kind of lost interest in the, in what he was doing. I, I loved Window Liquor and, of course, Come to Daddy, but Drux I wasn't into. I didn't yeah, care. I don't know. I was not into I, I come from that, that first wave of his stuff, that caustic windows mm-hmm. and, and all that more industrial-ish sound What about Analord? Were you digging that? The I actually bought all of them, but I kind of sold all of them. I did, just didn't really hit it me. Didn't, yeah, it didn't work out and, for me. But now he released a lot of that stuff on SoundCloud and that, that stuff. There's and some it's some amazing. Gems. I've been playing a lot of stuff out. I mean, there's gives, some you know? stuff that are just as good, if not better, than what came out oh, on the I, albums. I'm, I, he's got albums worth of great stuff from there. I heard they just put more up. I just got a link from my girlfriend the other day that there's I, like I 10 more tracks. I a few of them, yeah. Yeah, I have the whole, I have like 200 tracks so far. Yeah, I'm still, and I'm digesting them like 10 at a time. Prior, right to, the, prior to him doing that, if you remember, he also did that digital release that they, uh, uh, they like bought the the I think it was Animal Bubble Beth Volume Five that oh, they yeah. put out. And I was kind of like, how did he never put this out? Because that yeah. that that was incredible. I I honestly wasn't so much into that one, but it is bizarre that it didn't come out. There's some killer tracks on that one. But There's when you consider that he has so much unreleased music still to this day, you're like, okay, I can see why he didn't give a shit if it came out or not, you know. But uh, you know, that's I, I think. Yeah, there's definitely going to be a period where Experimental makes a com- big comeback. Like, I remember, I don't know, five, six years ago, Ambient kind of made a return, but it was definitely more on, like, the landscape side of things. And not I think it's happening in techno. I mean, you see what's going on with Atonal and, these, you know, the festival there. And That's true. The kind of acts that are playing there. It's getting really big, that Candy that Ray I mean, and stuff you, like that. You, you went from, you know, these... Uh, you went from, from what was going on, the uh, what's the party that they do the event every year, the... Um, the other one that's the once a year thing that they do at Burkhan now, the other big festival. CTM? Yeah, is it? CTM. So you had CTM, which has been kind of pushing that since I've lived here. They've been around doing that for ages. Now you got Atonal, you got Cranker Festival. I mean, you got a lot of stuff going on with this, with, with this ambient experimental thing just alone yeah. and go in. It's a lot of people doing it, you know? The only thing, and that's, I'm super into it. The only thing that I've noticed is when it comes to this side of, experimental music or whatever you want to classify it as it's all pretty dark right now i for one like you i miss the early 90s like campy chill out vibes yeah i like i like a, with a, it, a little know, it could be i like melan- i like even more melancholic like stuff more self-reflective yeah you like, know that's what's missing in a lot yeah, of I, what's I, coming I, I out right that. now did you hear the um it's to me it's the best album i've heard this year the uh, asc album from uh, imagine the future you know asc from the uk I know of them, but I haven't heard the this album. This album is genius. It's really, really the way I used to hear Mono Lake when I was listening to Mono Lake in the two thousands when he was just breaking ground like a mm-hmm. jackhammer into the sidewalk with what he was doing. I mean, you know, I, I think Robert, you know, Henko, he was definitely making the most advanced shit in the first t- ten years of the deck of the. Oh, I agree of the millennium. I would say that the new ASC album, Imagine the Future, is definitely on that that level. It's uh, really beautiful melodies, bass lines. Just, you, you have to check it out, Dustin. Just trust me. I'm writing the note down right now. Imagine the future. Yeah, ASC. Okay. Do you know what I label like it's on? Spo- I feel like I'm a spokesperson. It's um, it's a Canadian label. I think it's uh, uh is it Season or uh, it's a it's a Canadian label that puts out a lot of ambient music. Okay. I think they, it's the sub label is called Samurai. I don't know off the top of my head, but I'm definitely gonna check it out, and I recommend uh, if you kind of dig the people we're talking about right now, give it a shot. Yeah, I mean, I, I, 
there's not that album really is one of those ones I just can't stop listening to. It's really, wow. it's really great. Have you heard the new uh, album from Object? No. That's also worth that. checking out. Okay. Yeah. Uh, he's. Uh, I know, know his stuff. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I played with him before. So definitely check that out too. Um, yeah. So let's see what else we can get into. You said you're, you're still working on other projects. Sonic Groove, for example, that's still running. Mm-hmm. The label, not the, the label. shop. Yeah, the label's still in existence, still putting the several records out of you. So, uh, uh, you know, what? T- tell us about that. Like, uh, who's what you got coming out? Who's out right now? Well, Sonic Groove, I, I changed the, the, the modus operandi like back in 2009 on how I wanted to run the label. In the 90s, I, I really liked running the label by mixing the styles up. I was always a, a massive fan of RNS records in the 90s, right? Yeah. So I always liked that RNS could put out an Aphex Twin record one week, you know, like Xylem Tube, and then the next week, JD Plastic Dreams would come out. And That's it was why like they're total, a legendary label. You know, and it was just such a, a, a major change of styles of music but almost every record that came out was incredible they had a couple duds here and there but the majority of the stuff was incredible yeah. and and the styles were always different you know you mm-hmm. had such a, a, a wide range so when i did sonic groove in the in the, in the 90s i wanted to do something kind of like that i mean you, you still want to i still was following more of this kind of traditional techno way yeah. of working but i would always like to throw a lecture track on a record or you know just to mm-hmm. mix it up a bit somebody's doing a more tech tech house i i still use the word tech house from the from the from the first one. real tech like house real tech house so yeah i liked all that aubrey stuff and mark ambrose yeah stuff great stuff amazing stuff shot tracks all that stuff so if i had tracks like that people were giving me i would also kind of mix it up on an ep i always tell the artists like i always like eps until this day i always tell an artist that when you do an ep it's a mini album so we don't have to have four slamming banging tracks give me two of your best hard tracks and give me two crazy deep tracks could be experimental could be electrical, could yeah. be deep and so i always do the label that way um the thing is, is that techno by the later '90s just had that kind of traditional thing where the people looked for a label for a specific sound, like if it was Downwards yeah. or Primate or any of the big labels, like you know Ben Sims Theory or any of the yep. labels. If, if if you if you broke the mold on a label, people didn't like that. And I remember having the shop, and so that kind of affected the following of the of the label, you know, into the yeah. 2000s. Then I started putting out more of this industrial-based stuff in the 2000s, and there wasn't really much of a scene for it. But I, I stuck to my guns with that, and I, and I slowed down on, on, on putting output out. I mean, it was a point in the mid-2000s where I put out a record or two a year, the maximum, you know? Yeah. But when the techno thing started to bubble up again, in 2009, I had, I had met Orfex and, uh, on my label. And I met them at Machine Fest, which is this huge rhythmic noise festival in Germany every year. It's been going on since like the early, like 2000 or maybe 99 or something like that. And I met them there and I was like, I, I knew their music and I heard them play live. And I was like, this is the perfect mixture of industrial and techno music. And I got to put this out. And then they had already did a, a remix CD that had a, a surgeon remix on one of the tracks that's like serious industrial, like 150 beats per minute. And I was like, you know what? No one in the techno scene knows this. So I want to put out two original tracks from you. And I licensed this remix. And then we get another remix from uh, DJ Pete because they really liked, you know, what Pete was doing yeah. with the substance stuff. And we put that out. And um, yeah, it sold really well. And then that really kickstarted what I wanted to do. And then I got some tracks from Obtain from Italy who hadn't really put anything out. I think he did some stuff on Sinewave a few years before that was a little bit more minimal based. And then I just really was like, I want to do the label again and it's going to get the attention. And I'm, this time I'm going to 
I'm kind of going to do what I've been trying to do for, you know, at that point for like seven, eight years with this fucking industrial thing that I want to push this industrial sound on Sonic Roof. And that's kind of been my mission, you know, Mm -hmm. mixing industrial and techno, um, not putting functional stuff out. I I mean, I'm not, you're not opposed to it, but I'm not not opposed to it. And if there's one track that's kind of good, that's in that mode, I'll do it. But you know, I'm more looking for, it's got to have this industrial element to, to the tracks, you know, and, uh, I'm, I've been sticking to my guns with that, but you know, you'll find on the next record that's coming out, Diagenetic Origin, who's a, a Swedish artist based in Berlin, who's done like three records for me already. The, the tracks, the, 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 the EP is really well-rounded. I mean, he's got, like, really nice tracks with, like, melancholic, you know, almost, like, not even melancholic, like, self-reflective pads on a couple of tracks. It's mm-hmm. it's really a, a very well-balanced EP of techno, industrial, uh, chill-out. Not I won't say chill-out, but nice, harder tracks to listen to at home. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, I, I try to do that on every record. I, I really A&R everybody really hard. You know, I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm making people work. You know, and then you know there's some classic techno stuff that I put out that's less industrial, like Henning's record that just came out recently. That's right, and that's even though it's a bit harder, it's got kind of a funky edge to it. I even said that in the feedback too. You know, where it's like, or I mean, it like it's kind of banging and it's distorted, but there's still it's not completely like doom and gloom. You know what I mean? It reminds me of this classic techno stuff from Rotterdam from like, not the Gabber, but the stuff that was kind of coming out even on Pulse 8 back in the early 90s, like uh, V Room and stuff like Speedy J in that time period where the kicks were really distorted, but the tracks were really jacking, you know? Exactly. That's what I'm getting at. It's not just this straight, you know, apocalyptic sound and it's, i, I love that I, I love that stuff man i mean it's a there's really this special sound from from holland from like 93 92 to 94 where it's just not even 94 like 92 93 kick drums are just really banging distorted but good there's like they're real punchy and uh yeah henning is really good with getting the sound and i don't even know if he knows all that stuff maybe he knows some of it but he's just he's got his own style of what he's doing and that's you know I, I, I'll put out records like that too. It doesn't have to be like straight industrial stuff, you know. Just well, he's hungry right now, and he's got a good thing going, and it, it works really well. So I think um, you know, if you're a Henning fan, uh, check it out. If you don't know who it is, Henning Bayer, he's a guy from Berlin. He's also doing the Grounded Theory parties, and uh, it's definitely a little bit more on the more punchy, distorted tip, but but jacking, but jacking exactly. So that's awesome. So what else you got coming? Well, that just came out, right? Or is yeah, that, that, that just came. That just came out in uh, in what, what was it in um, June? And then the next one is Diagenetic Origin, and then uh, I'm 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 analyzing who's next. I, I run the label as as like a fa- kind of a family affair, right? So yeah, you, you'll find on Sonic Groove that a lot of the, throughout the year it's a lot of the same artists that I put out last year. I've been working with a lot of the same people like Orfex and Realms, Diagenetic Origin, Northern Structures. I took on a, a, a new old school guy, uh, Max Durante, who's like kind of a Roman techno legend. Yep. He's one of the first guys to really play techno in Rome. I know. And he did, a, he did a record for me back in, uh, in May. So he'll be doing, having another release. I really love the record he did for me. It's uh, amazing. This guy, I mean, this guy was making industrial techno back in the early 90s as Automatic Sound Unlimited with uh, Dior Angelo, who used to do stuff on Reflex. So he's just a natural. I mean, the record he gave to me recently is just perfectly what I what I'm looking for for the label. So he's he's into the Ross, a great DJ too, amazing technique tech 
technical guy, man. Like, does some crazy shit, like hip hop trap. Uh, really? Hip hop tricks. That was a ton nice. of stuff, right? Yeah, that kind yeah. of. I love that. I love that stuff, and that kind of fell out of. Uh, Vogue. I don't know, being. Yeah, out of Vogue or being cool these days. Here, grab one of these so it's not clanging on the table. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, but, um, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to get a little more loose with that on the mixing too. Uh, you know, I like I like cutting back and forth and chopping tracks up. You know, something I used to do mm-hmm. a lot back in the '90s. Yeah, I mean, like I I kind of had the same thing going too. I think the last mix that I really did that kind of stuff was like 2004 or five. You know, the beat juggling and the scratching and shit like that. And I mean, granted, when the minimal thing came around, that wasn't happening with that stuff. And even today's techno, I guess it's getting more towards the point where you could do that because it's really tooly. But um. I don't know. I mean, it's just people don't care about that as much. I still use three decks a lot, and I do a lot of tricks now, but it's much more psychedelic. It's not like, oh, he's obviously beat juggling, but like you can loop stuff, play it in reverse, run it through this effect and back in. and You know what I mean? So it's more of a cerebral thing rather than like the hip-hop cut and scratch sort of vibe. But I hope that comes back because it's fun. Not yeah, all yeah, the time, like but you know. Yeah, not all the time, and not not overdoing it. But Max, that's what I like about Max when he does it. He's not overdoing it. He's mixing, and it's it's tight. It's you know, it's it, for me. It's got to be precisionally tight. I've heard people over the years, back in the day, more because people, like you said, aren't really doing it anymore. But some of those big, super famous DJs that had a lot of credit for doing that kind of stuff. I don't know. It never was always tight to me, and I, I it really bothers me when people are not on point when they're cutting, and you can yeah. hear it's offbeat, like. You know, it's if you're gonna do it, you better be a perfectionist with it. To I me, agree. that's that's me, and because I, I pick up on little little shit like that. And if uh, if it's slightly off, it's annoying me. It's getting under my skin for the most part. Yeah, and especially like if if you're following hip hop at that time, you have higher expectations of of what it should be when people are gonna beat juggle something or right. cut over to a record or whatever. Like as you said, some of these guys that are bigger, I hear it, and I'm like. Obviously, you've never really listened to anything hip hop related because no. this guy can't fucking scratch yeah, at all. Yeah, exactly. He can't juggle. And then you got other guys who came from hip hop backgrounds and they're just slaying it over a techno mix. You know what I mean? And I don't know. It's, I guess you could say that about a lot of things. Like if you have the experience, you know, you expect more, but whatever. So, other project wise, the other thing I forgot that, I, that we just completed and I'm really excited about it is the new record I did with Perk. We have a new AX and P record coming out. Excellent. Is that where's that coming? That's gonna come. We we I don't know if you knew that we already did one before, like about two years ago. We had I didn't. A, we had a twelve inch out, and uh, we started our own label for it. It's called AX and P. That's our artist name for okay. the project. And uh, we've actually done a few gigs together already, like DJing, like back to back, but not like not here passing the headphones, but four by four. You know, like Excellent. two set, and then he's playing, and then we're riding on top of each other. Uh, so we got a few gigs coming up with that in in early next year, which we're looking forward to doing. And the record's coming out, and and I'm really I'm really blown away by what we did. Uh, awesome. I'm really excited. He's really found his own voice. You know what I mean? Like he's always kind of had that perk sound over the years. Because I mean, he did a lot of stuff on really big labels, actually. That you know he would never step foot on now, maybe. Yeah, yeah. But he's <laughs> like, a super nice guy. Um, he kind of you could tell. You know. Um, I don't know what, 2008, 9 maybe, decided to kind of go for more of a stripped-down industrial sound. And at first, it, I wasn't really on board with it because you could tell it was kind of like the infancy of really finding this idea. And then as the releases came closer and then his album came out, like you can tell like he nailed it and he totally came into his own and it was very he was comfortable with it. It wasn't just like a clanging kick drum and some reverb. Like there was like that funk I was telling you about with Henning, that's in there. It's not just... 
the darkness. There's yeah, uh, I, I there's mean, some I've color worked, to it. I've, I've worked with, with Perk, you know, over the last few years, and he's definitely he's getting more extreme. Actually, the sheer brutality. I mean, really, the newest stuff is really heavy, man. It's good. It's it's banging. But you know, I don't know. I, I you got to be it's it, you got to be really hardcore for this stuff because I think it's you, you know yeah. it's, I think it works. I played some one of his tracks out over the weekend, and it definitely it definitely worked really well. One of the new tracks, but it's some really heavy duty shit. It's good. I like it. That's nice. what I like. There's not a enough of that i me. heard uh i need more tracks like that to play i heard sets. powell at uh berlin atonal and i mean i dig his records they were i mean they're pretty heavy but they weren't like balls out energy intensive when you hear them but when you hear it live like it was just this crazy intense energy that you know people were up for it which is great but i know that at some places they'd be like well in the 90s it would have been a perfect fit but these days people don't really i think know what real high intensity means or like real hard records you know and uh i was just happy that people were kind of digging that vibe again because i feel like it's missing a lot yeah i like i like the fact that always uh perky's doing this you know he's going harder and he don't care it's just doing what he wants to do yeah and, you know you know there's no there's no faking it you know it's just it, it, the it's records sincere. are getting more and intense and it's uh it's good i like this that's why i like working with him on stuff awesome so the label, it's keeping you pretty busy along. You just finished the album. So uh, do you have time to get out and enjoy life otherwise? Or Yeah. You know, as, uh, as I've told you on the side, outside of the interview, you know, I do a mm-hmm. lot of photography of graffiti on trains. Yeah, we talked about uh, that quite around a bit. The world, around the, no, I won't say around the world because it's not happening in that many places. But here in Berlin, you know, you can always see painted trains if you know where to look. Uh, you know, if I go to places like Rome or Greece, I'm doing a lot of photography. I'm taking, you know, I, I have, you know, photos that I can definitely make a book with. It's uh, in in the, in planning to do something with a book at some point with my photography. I mean, I've been photographing uh, graffiti on trains since 1984. So Yeah, it's a long uh, time. It's a long time. And there's you know. some really crazy shit going on in Berlin right now, too. Like, every time we meet up, you've always got, like, you got to check this out, check that line out. You know, check this out on Facebook. I know. I was just on the train. I was going to, to get an allergy allergy injection for the for the hay fever. And I was like, oh, shit, something's in the back car. And then I, I was like, okay. And then I mapped it out to when the train was going to come back to where I was. I actually wound up showing up to the another appointment later. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, I was like, shit, I'm, I'm waiting that out, you know. Yeah. But I waited, I waited an extra 20 minutes and I got really good photos, you know. It's always uh, makes you feel like you got something accomplished for the day. In a weird yeah, way, no, right? it's it's a great thing because it's something you're into and it gets yeah. you out and keeps you moving. You oh, know, I and- I love a good a good photograph, man. Just the way I love a good track. If I get a good photo and the lighting is correct and it's just you know there's some some scenic architecture or something in the background while the train's moving with with the pieces on it. That's that's good for me. Captures the time, and you know. Way. And then I also do, you know, I like doing a lot of bike riding around Berlin. You know, I guess the weather's going to start getting a little shitty out now, so that's going to be over soon. But. Yeah, it's arguably the last nice day in Berlin, and we're sitting inside chatting. But I'm cool with that. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I, I had but, a good, I had a good summer, so yeah, I can, I can take a nice. day in. So, I mean, as far as trains go, is there anybody? If if they're coming to Berlin, a lot of people are listening about because the show has a lot to do with Berlin. Is there anybody that like they got to really watch out for? Or they got to go online and check out that you're a big fan of, or um, you know, I like I like people to explore that on their own. You know, I don't really Fair like enough. mentioning names because the people that are painting trains they like to really keep an anonymity because of you know how illegal it is to do. Fair enough. So. I think, you know, if, if people are interested in that, they'll figure a way in to find out the info on that. You know, you just, just, if you're into it and you come to Berlin, 
you might see 10 trains in a row and see nothing, but you'll keep your eyes open because there's always something mm-hmm. every day. Well, I feel like especially on the uh, the S ring because there's multiple trains here in town. Like, yeah. you know, I used to live at Oskreutz, and I wasn't even particularly getting on my bike and searching out like you. But after a while, I was seeing trains like every day, whether I was trying to find them or not. So, I mean, there is stuff going on. They're not all good. Some of them are right. shit. And then some of them, you're just like, oh, my God, this is incredible, you know? So I mean, on, on Monday, there was a double whole car, like two full whole cars, and then another train on the same train painted, and we were very good, you know? Wow. There's always, there's always some good stuff running if you look around. Um, I would say if anybody's interested in that kind of thing, I mean, you got to spend time. It's, it takes, you know, I'll go sit in the sun in a place where I can just chill out, like as if I'm in a park, but mm-hmm. I'm watching trains instead. And, you know, eventually I know I'm going to see stuff. And then, uh, you know, I trade information with some other guys that do, do photography and they give me all the tips and we, we switch up. So sometimes I already actually know where something's going to be and I can go out with my camera and just go, you know, shoot it and then and be done with the day with that, you know. Nice. But like I said, I also do, you know, other stuff as well as uh, riding the bike when it's nice out. I try to work at night. I'm more of a night person when it comes to working. Email yeah. and studio and, yeah. that's that's. Uh, so how are you finding, like, Dealing with the emails and the pressures, like, uh, like, well, first of all, people don't realize we kind of went into this a little bit this weekend because uh, uh, Adam and I got not stranded, but we had a longer layover in Rome, which that airport can be pretty brutal, and it was kind of nice to be able to chat for a couple hours and not deal with all the the people. That yeah, it was a nice run, and I wasn't expecting to yeah. see you on that flight back. Because and the- um, you know, we were kind of talking about the shit that you may be expected to do or put up with these days as opposed to let's say even five years ago be it social media or constantly like you know posting clips or feeling like you got to do put out records or something like how do you feel these days about all that are you have you found a pace that you're comfortable with or do you feel like uh you know i'm the worst social networker there is man when it comes to promoting i'm just not i'm not a uh I'm not into self promo. I just I'm not good at it. But at the same point, I don't want to pass it to someone else because I don't really want other people being involved in my my personal business. You know, reading my emails or having the you know yeah. having to be in. I don't want somebody else being in contact for people that are people that that like my music other than me. You know, so it's a, it's a it's a it's a tough balance because I just don't really like Facebook. I mean, Facebook. I'm very turned off to Facebook. It's just it, it they they suckered everybody into this artist page thing and and having people to pay for it. And I refuse. I will not give them any money. I yeah. refuse to promo myself on there and pay for it. You know, I miss MySpace. I liked MySpace. I think it was much more functional for, for musicians to use. It was fun. Uh, you know, it was more fun. You had your, tr- your tracks. You could change your graphic design on your page. It was like your own personal web page almost, you know. Uh, you could you could search people's music interests. So if, the, if I came out on, on a label, like, you know, like, you know, if I came out on Sonic Groove as an artist, that not, not being the owner, I could actually look in up to see what people like Sonic Roof and if you like that label well let me add you because maybe you'll like my music you know I I think it was a nice way that people could search one another Facebook you can't really do that there's no interaction as an artist you know I can't even go to write you an email on your artist page I can't communicate with you on Facebook well I turned that off but yeah I get what you're saying you know what do you mean you turned it off is is there a new way to to go around that now to to see other people's profiles as, as if you're logged in as an artist on there um, I don't know. I just know that on my artist page, you can either allow people to send messages to your artist page Oh, yeah, page yeah, yeah. you can not. do and that. But how do I send you – if you have an artist page, how do you find Adam X on that page? You can't search Oh, you got to have like a 
you know, a, a Facebook profile, a personal right, you have one, to go whether a it's a bullshit one. profile right. or you actually have one. Yeah, it's, it's, and it's then you yeah. got to build up and you got to deal with that. It's just it's just a pain in the ass. I don't want to deal with that. You know, so I post on Facebook, you know, every now and then. But I, I hate the whole algorithm structure. You know, you put up a photograph and then everybody's just liking it because everybody's seeing it. It's like, why is it that if I have, you know, you, if you have X amount of fans that those amount of fans, I'll say it's a hundred thousand fans. That every all those people should be able to see your post. They yeah. should. Why is it that only like ten percent of that sees your post? Yeah. I mean, you, that's it's that's bullshit. Well, if they like you, they should see it. But they Facebook wants you to pay for everybody to see it. Yeah, and it's it's kind of an evil entity, and they didn't start off that way. They kind no. of kind well, of, but they that's kind how of suck at everybody. They know exactly what they're doing. They want to reel you in, so you don't have a choice. You know, for example, people spend the years building up their thing. Like, I got, I don't know, 60,000, 70,000 fans right now. And last week I put a record out and the I just posted the link to the video or something. And I get this Facebook message that pops up and it says, you've reached uh, 900 fans out of all those thousands. And it says for, I think it was $10, I could reach potentially 300 more. And I'm just like, what? No, I mean, fuck yourself. Disgusting. You know what I mean? It's like, disgusting. what the hell? <laughs> How are we all on that? I mean, I remember I was like the last, I was like a late holdout on going on there. I remember I was living with Abe Duque at the time. And he's like, Facebook is the future. You got to go on there. And I'm like, I don't want to leave MySpace. He's like, you're going to be the only one left if you keep it yeah, up. Yeah, I you was know? right at the end of MySpace and, too. And I really never liked, I just never liked the layout of Facebook. I just don't, don't like it. I just never liked it. And I'm just not into it. So... It's, I don't know, I would like to see something a little bit more where it's interactive in a way, like sort of the way MySpace was, but mixed with Bandcamp, mm-hmm. where you, where people that, it, that are fans or into your music, you know, other artists, they can all come to your page and they can buy your music directly from you. I think that that's amazing. And then, but be also able to interact with the artists. I mean, not the artists, but the other yeah. the, the people that support your music on, on Facebook. Sort of, the, I mean, now I'm well, saying Well, MySpace actually I mean, wanted Bandcamp. to relaunch like that. And they, then I guess it failed. Who knows? But, but Bandcamp should do it because Bandcamp is already, people are already flocking there. Yeah. They should do it so that now I sell on Bandcamp, but I, you know, I can't, I don't have a wall on there where I can, I can converse with people, you know, yeah. that would be cool. Well, the thing, I love Bandcamp, and for those of you out there who are buying music, you should really try and check Bandcamp first to see if your favorite producer or label is selling it on there because they get, I think, 85% of the cut as opposed to, like, your 50 or 60 on Bport and all those other sites. Um, the nice thing about the site, though, is is it's simple, it's easy to use, there's no BS, you get it's paid really right away. It's really easy to use, but... The thing that would be great about Bandcamp is that if it could be more of a portal or a curated store. Like the great thing about I love going into a record shop is it's curated. If I go across the street over by Hardwax, um, you know, they have their own curation. If I go to Space Hall, they have their own curation of what they deem as great records that, you know, stuff I didn't know to look for. Maybe I, I know and I'm going to pick it up. So with Bandcamp, I would love to be able to pick and choose so like every week people could come to the site and i have my little storefront that's like you know zon's record picks for the week and it's curated by me and people can buy that shit and then of course the money goes to the to the labels or wherever the artists and more of a portal a community thing that way rather than you know the one-stop shop like itunes or beatport or whatnot i mean it is a little hard on beep on uh, bandcamp to go and uh and to search out new music yeah you have to know what you're looking for you know you have to know what you're looking for you know and 
we need to bridge that gap. That's that's definitely that, that has to happen. And it doesn't have to be Bandcamp. It could be it, it could be an, another company could start it up. You know, it's uh, it's you know, I think when if it was connected sort of the way MySpace was, and you had your 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 groups of people like your your fans and connected with other mm-hmm. labels and artists, then it would be easier to to search through the music. Yeah. You know, it'd be a better easier bridge to cross. You know, yeah. I mean, right now. I think the only option, and I could be wrong, it's not like I spend a lot of time on there, but you can, you know, the new Adam X record is supported by, and then it's got like five little icons of the people that bought it or whatever, and then you could click on their links and see their collection. But I mean, really, there's, there could be a way to have your own storefront to share things or recommendations. You know what I mean? Or, yeah, it's got to be a way. It's gonna, it's gonna. I think it's gonna evolve into that. I mean, how long is Facebook gonna last? I mean, doesn't don't things get played out after a while and it's time for something new well it, it's just ingrained itself so much and a lot of you know when you try to go on sites to i don't know sign up for food delivery to get a pizza sent to you they're like log into our site with facebook you know like right facebook up. has done a great job at integrating it into your life more than you'd ever imagine you know what i mean so it's not gonna go anywhere anytime soon it might die off a bit but it will always continue to be a part of like uh your identity, which is kind of fucked up, kinda right? Scary man, what the fuck? <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, I, I was a really big supporter of Twitter for a long time too because you had 140 characters. There's not a whole lot of damage. Well, that's not true. You can do a lot of damage in 140 characters, but for the most part, it's not as annoying. It's fire and forget, more like that. But they even started doing the algorithm thing. Where like, well. Not everybody's going to see your tweets anymore, and I'm like, well, I'm not going to pay to like. Oh, they do that too. I never, I never signed up. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. So, uh, I kind of got off the bandwagon with that a few months ago, just because it's like, well, it's no longer fun if it's becoming this like commodity. I I just grew up also in the era where there was a there was mystique behind what people did, and and the mystique is not always there anymore for the most part. I mean, everything is every in everybody's face all the time. You know, it's like. I used to like the days when you didn't know who someone was that was making records, and you kind of wondered what kind of person was making these records. You know? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I was, I was, I forget who I was telling to. I was telling somebody on the show like for years, I didn't even know Jeff Mills was black. You know what I'm saying? Because this was pre, well, it wasn't pre-internet, but that information wasn't really coming around, and I didn't really know what to look for at the time. You know? And um, so, you know, people would tell me like, because Basic Channel was doing their thing before my time, they're like, oh yeah, they performed behind a curtain, nobody knew who they were, and. I appreciate that mystique too, and there's a lot of people that honestly don't want to come on the show because they're going for that, which I support. And it is kind of weird having a talk show where people can kind of come on and get intimate about their views on things. So it's a maybe a bit hypocritical for me, but I, I appreciate both sides of it. You know what I'm saying? Because um, some people, some people are just a bit. It almost becomes a gimmick, the mystique. You know, it's just whether you, uh, if it feels natural or not. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's um, there's just I guess there's just way too much promo. Everything, every every way you turn on the internet, you know, it's like it's just always in your face. I I don't know. I grew up in an era where there wasn't even you know there was a fanzine, a magazine, and that was it. You know, you didn't really you just went to the record store to find out what was new. I like that. You know, exactly. Um, that's kind of how I am still. You know, I don't really read a lot of, of like music publications. I'd rather go on Juno, Hardwax, see what's out. And then, you know, sometimes people are like, oh, you don't know he's a big artist? And I'm like, no. <laughs> yeah. Really? Okay, that's cool. Yeah, that music is actually good. Yeah, yeah, you know. I don't like being told. I'd rather, I'd rather explore for myself and, and make up my own opinions on, on what I'm hearing and not really have, uh, you know, 
some sort of premonition on what something's going to sound like, you know? Yeah, I mean, well, not only is it exploring on your own, but another thing that I, I realized recently is, you know, when you go out, whether you're playing at a gig or you just go out to hear some music or something, how often does anybody ever talk about music anymore? Not in like, not in the sense of the general, oh, everything sucks right now or everything's great, but more like, dude, I got this record the other week or have you heard this new one? I don't know. Maybe in your world it's different, but no, all the, true. I was all the freaking DJs it, yeah. I know, nobody, nobody talks, talks about records. And then there's guys that go online on Facebook and stuff and they talk about how they have all these records and big collections. And then when you're at dinner, they won't say a peep about records. They'll go on about True Detective or whatever the fuck's on Netflix, but nobody talks about music. It's crazy. Yeah, yeah, you know? that's true. It's, I definitely agree and with you. I but... still love talking about music. You know, I talk to a few of my friends. We talk every week about, you know, what's coming or who sent you over some files that you can't share. You know what I mean? Like, right, right, right. And I, I just wish that people kind of would get back into that again as opposed to, I mean, yeah, we just did complain about social media for like 10 minutes, but, <laughs> you know, there's more to more to this industry than being grumpy old men about it, you know? No, no, no of course. I, the only thing about being old is sometimes my memory, like, you'll ask me about something, I'm like, oh, this name, oh, this name. I'll be, be oh, yeah, yeah. I used to be sharp as a knife. I, now I sit here and I'm like, uh... Because, I mean, the truth of the matter is with me, with, with, with DJing and the music that I play out, I'm not really following any specific artist. There's always different tracks I like from different people, some, some unknown, some known. Okay. And, you know, it's, it's always hard to think, to say, well, I, I, I like everything he's doing because I'm not playing, if I'm not playing everything out from that person or I'm not playing every record they put out, then it's, it's hard to even remember. You know, yeah, playing such a wide variation of different artists' music in a well, set. Well, there's a lot of. I mean, it, it's the same even in pop music, but there's a lot of like, quote unquote, one hit wonders too. Like you, you just find this dope record from a guy. It's one track. You play the hell out of it, and then you don't hear something decent from him for two years, maybe or if ever. And then, of course, there's some guys that are always reliable that you just can buy it on site because you know it'll be pretty decent yeah and i think I, I i'm also just a bit more sharper with with listening to albums and remembering the names of the albums because the techno techno stuff i'm just so picky it's not to say that even the tracks that it's just tracks that find their way into my set tracks could still be good that guys are doing that i like but mm -hmm. if i'm not playing it and i'm not hearing it all the time then i've kind of it also kind of goes out of my head a bit you know no yeah so, i hear you totally you know, we're talking 25 years of techno in my brain here that I, I still also like a lot of old stuff. So I'm mixing stuff and I'm, I still, mm -hmm. you know, buy some old records as well, too. So it's, uh, it's a lot of stuff over the, over the time. I hear you. I mean, I like to think that I'm pretty on top of things and I, I kind of got a lot of knowledge about it. But there's still times where even with the newer stuff, it is a little bit harder for me to quite put my finger on what the name is again if i scroll through my mp3s i'm like yeah, oh yeah, yeah, yeah that's yeah, the exactly. one exactly i mean it's but, a, that's the big thing with mp3 versus collecting yeah. records too you know when you when you used to go through the records and you pick that record up every week you're like dude it's got a red sleeve it's got a yep. yellow sticker it's the inside yep. track now i'm like ah oh, fuck i know there's uh i think he's got like two s's in his name or something or is that the <laughs> label i don't know and then you just keep jogging you scroll <laughs> So then people see me at the club, and I'm just sitting there staring at the screen like, I don't know what the hell this is called. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. You know, I, know, I know how it goes. It's, 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 um, I, have this, I think we all have that same, same issue right there. Yeah. That. It's, uh, that's, that's, that's living in the digital world. Yeah. But are you, are you buying records much, or are you still mostly 
Well, I, I just got very discouraged. I got to give Juno a little credit, though. I, I, I hadn't bought anything in a while, and I ordered a package from Juno of some stuff I wanted on uh, online. I'll buy stuff when I go into shops occasionally, but I don't really do, like, online stuff. Discogs I do when I'm looking yeah. for old records that I'm, that I'm after. But new stuff, usually if I don't get it in a shop, then I'm probably not picking it up too often, you know. Fair enough. Uh, I'll go to Hard Wax or Space Hole or whatever, you know, Halcyon in New York or whatever. If there's something I need, I'll, mm-hmm. I'll, I'll grab it. But I, I ordered a, a, a box of records. It, it, for a month, it didn't show up, and I was super stressed, and it never got it. And then Juno had to resend it to me yesterday, and I was like, they, I asked them if they could do FedEx, and they FedExed it, and I, and I had the package today. It was really nice to open a box of records. It's pretty exciting. You know? I'm happy when any time the UPS guy comes or something. Like, I got the hand blender sitting on the counter over there. Like, that came yesterday morning. I'm like, let's blend shit, you know, and it, I, I, it's still in the box. I'm not going to use it, but just opening a package is a feeling I know, but not when they steal your fucking records and you're waiting a month and you're like, wait, now you, you kind of... Now like, you're just like, finally, great, throw it on. <laughs> no, I was really stressed. I was like, you know, I haven't ordered a box of records in a while and now they don't fucking show up and somebody fucking stole them. <laughs> and I'm sure it happened in the UK because... They yeah. just, you know, Britain, Britain, and, and Germany. I don't think I think the mail was very efficient here. I've never had a package go missing here. Oh, you I don't even at, think it made it out of Britain. I mean, when you worked at the shop, how many packages went missing? And they were always in England and France. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's like every <laughs> yeah. all all postmen must be DJs because I can't count the amount of times that records. <laughs> Going to or from my house were intercepted by people. It's you know, what I mean? you know, I never had a problem when I shipped records to Germany back then. Really? No, France and France and the UK always problems. Interesting. So, must be a lot of techno DJs working. That's what I'm saying. Guys. That's the, <laughs> Monday mornings must be rough. Tuesday mornings look out after they got that ecstasy yeah, yeah, yeah. come down, right? <laughs> but um, so when the record shop closed, you had a lot of back stock. I mean, what? Did you just liquidate that? What happened with all that? Actually, you'd be surprised. We when we first we we moved shop in two thousand three. Our shop was on Carmine Street in Manhattan, and that was in the West Village. And the the landlord he wanted so much money for the rent. I mean, he was like increasing our rent like twice fold. And uh, that was the last location. Yeah, right? that was, the, was no, there, that was yeah. no. There was one after we moved to the uh, to, to okay. the East Village for one year, and this was in a time. I mean. I didn't want to close the shop, but I knew that that things weren't good, and um, we should actually really backtrack to to nine eleven. I was know? just going to ask. I, I, I up until nine eleven. Fuck it, let's go into it. Up until nine eleven, Sonic Groove was like a really successful shop. I had several people working for me. We had mm-hmm. a, a mail order department. We had a distribution company that I ran with Dietrich Schoenemann. Yep. That we had in Brooklyn. We opened up a warehouse in Brooklyn. And it was just really good, good times, you know, uh, yeah. making a profit and selling a lot of records. Um, the thing was is that right after the euro came out in 2000, the records started going up in price. So 2001 wasn't a great year. It was actually before the euro really started to affect the, the imports. And, and being that we sold 80% of imports in Sonic Roof, you know, it was mostly an import of European records. But- I mean, that's interesting because around that time, it was in the American dollar's favor. So wouldn't you be able to buy records cheaper no, from no, Europe? No, the euro in the beginning was kind of one-to-one, and then the euro started really pulling up on the, on the, on the dollar pretty quickly. Yeah, because like, I remember the first time I started coming to Europe, it was like uh, 80 cents euro to the dollar. So I, was at, I would come over to Europe and just buy up records like crazy right at first. 
And then well, the year changed over in two thousand, right? Yeah, ninety nine and two thousand. So probably more towards two thousand one. And I, I remember okay. this because it wasn't good. It was like the imports where we used to pay like six ninety nine wholesale for a German record. They started going up to seven ninety nine, eight forty nine. So now the record prices were going up, right? Mm-hmm. And that wasn't you know a good thing, but it wasn't really destroying the business yet. Um, people were still buying records because there was no really other medium yeah. other than CD, right? But 2001 came along, and then 9-11 happened. And, you know, just as, you know, shops in Berlin have their businesses half tourists, like Hard Wax and Space Soul, yeah. we were half tourists, even yeah. maybe even more, maybe 60-40, right? Once 9-11 happened, you got to, you know, remember in, in kilometers, we were like a kilometer away, like 1.5 kilometers away, a mile away from World yeah. Trade Center. We were in the area where they had it all zoned out. You couldn't even open up a business there for a few days. Oh. After 9-11 happened, no one came to New York. People did not travel to New York. Oh. It was just not a place to come. And so now that 60% tourist business was 0% tourists. Now you had people from New York who were buying records who were worried about the future. I mean, this was like a war hit New York. I mean, oh, yeah. it was insane, you know? Um, no one was buying records. I mean, we went we went down 80% of business. Well, and the party scene dropped off, that, too. There was not even a party in New York so, for at least yeah, a month after that. Exactly. I, I, I actually remember the first party that happened. It was a small party. So there was like it was just destroyed. The, the, the heart and soul of New York was ripped out from that, right? Mm-hmm. Then at the same time, high-speed internet was coming out. It was more accessible to the general public now, right, at a cheaper yeah. price. And then Final Scratch, and this is all 2000 now, right? Yeah. So 9-11 was at the end of 2001. Now we're getting into 2002. It, it just, you know, it was snowballing against, you know, vinyl. It was just getting tough. And then, you know, we had a, a landlord who decided that $4,000 a month rent in New York City – was not enough and wanted $6,000. And he knew he was doing that to push us out. And yeah. He, you know, so we had to look in another side of town that was not as trendy yet, which now is, but we kind of went the time, there. Yeah. We kind of went there and it wasn't. And, um, you know, people just weren't coming in. And, you know, Heather, who owned a shop with me, she had a, a baby in 2001. And uh, so she was barely coming to work. My brother was not coming to the shop much, though. They kind of left it all on me. And yeah. all I know is that went from having, you know, several people. In, you know, we had three or four people employed at any given time, plus the ownership between me, Heather, and Frankie of the shop. And they weren't coming. And then I couldn't even afford to keep the employees. So I was, like, basically putting the, um, I'm at the post office. I'll be back in a half hour. Sign up on the door. But it didn't matter because no one was at the door when I came back anyway. Yeah. You know, and then after a year of pushing through that, I just decided that I was, I told these guys, I'm like, you guys are not around for me. Mm-hmm. This door is done. I'm pulling the plug on it. It's like, I'm done with this. Uh, you, it is, there's no unity w- amongst the people that I'm running the shop with and I don't have anybody working there and I'm just not feeling it. And yeah. so I, I just pulled the cord out on it and told them, you know what? You guys haven't been around. Sonic Groove is mine now, the name. I use it for the record label, which mm-hmm. I do. Yep. And you guys cannot use a name unless it's involved with me somehow. Like if we do a party together, uh-huh. it's fine. You know, but no Sonic Group events without me involved. And I have, you know, I own the name now. So, uh-huh. and that's how that, that all ended. But, you know, it really came down to the technology of the internet, the MP3s, the death of vinyl going down this mm-hmm. period where I won't say it, it died completely, but I mean, it died a lot, man. Comparatively, yeah. 
you know, and, uh, you know, the 9-11, it just destruction. It's amazing. You know, a lot of people closed. I mean, you see what happened in the States. Uh, yeah, it was not everybody. exclusive to techno uh, music. The distributors I mean, gone. Watts, Syntax, Nemesis, all major distributors gone out of business. You know, Syntax lasted maybe another year after after me, two years. Mm-hmm. Watts sold all their catalog, their whole warehouse of records to let it be from yeah. where you're from. They bought the whole, the whole, the whole bullshit, lot, yeah. you know. Uh, crazy times in the U.S. You know, satellite records, which was quite big in New York, also they went out of business. Uh, yeah. What was uh, some of the online stores? I forgot from the West Coast. They all went oh, out. Groove Tech yeah, and Groove all Tech, that, right? Um, you know, yeah. You, what else? It was, a, it was a, like Vinyl Market. Was it Kazu or yeah, something? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it went was under. Just, and I mean, Halcyon's old, really the only one that kind of is left. Yeah, Dope Hal- Jams is gone. Um, yeah, Halcyon's Halcyon stayed. You know, he's been rocking out, showing over there, and uh, Gramophone in Chicago still around. Yeah, you know, but I think all the stores in LA had all went out, out from what I, if I remember correctly, uh, except Amoeba. Doctor, uh, what well, oh yeah, yeah, what's his name? Doctor, uh, not yeah, feel he's still good. There. What's his name? He's uh, there, and he's Ron the Claw Shop. Yeah. Uh, I can't remember the name. the name of the shop. It's been so long. Sorry, Ron. Yeah, <laughs> David and the Hyperactive, those guys, they always got oh, good support what's for it. shop? Shit. It's still, it is still there, actually. But he's a little bit more out of the city, too, though. Yeah, you, know, all you the, all, the, all the other shops, like Beat Nonstop. And Dr. Free something. Dr. Dr. Free Clouds. Right? Yes, there, there we go. go. There we go. And then, uh, yeah, I mean, even in Minneapolis, like let it, as soon as Let It Be got that stock, like a year or two later, they got pushed out for uh, loft condos, which never got built. And that was actually an amazing record shop. I was doing the record buying for Techno at Vital Vinyl. They lasted until, I want to say, 08 or 09, if not a little longer. And that was mainly because they got into, like, renting gear out, too. But, you know, you were saying when all the distributors went under, we had to start buying records directly from Europe. And, you know, that was a... You know, you had to buy a lot more records in order to make it worth it to come directly to you from Europe. So, like, we're buying... 15 copies of a record that we knew we'd probably sell five of, but, you know, like, whatever. It it was just what had to be done, and it was dark times back then. Yeah, what happened was, because you asked me about what we do with the stock, well, the the thing was is that I couldn't really reorder stuff, so the stock was selling. Like, whatever was left, I was selling on Discogs, or actually, I don't even know if Discogs was running up as, with the site yet with sales. I think that was a they little bit They were doing afterward. it, but it just wasn't I think it as, came a little bit more in 2005. Like it was Gem. Gem was, what was it, Music right. Stack, maybe, too? Yeah, Gem was the one that I was still using. Discogs wasn't, wasn't up yet for, yeah. for sales. Uh, so Gem, you know, I was doing a lot of stuff on Gem, and in the end, I, I guess we got stuck with maybe two thousand, three thousand records of stock that we that we had for years. You know, it was yeah. not a lot of it was just stuff that we got out of collections. So I gave that stuff out to Dietrich, and he sold some of it online. And then when he was done with it, I gave some of it back to Bones. It was there was nothing good. I picked all the I took all the really good records out and took it back to my house in Brooklyn. And then when Discogs started to to really come up, I started selling on Discogs. There you go. And got rid of all that, all the good shit. I bet you wish that you hold on to some of those now, because some of those copies, it's extreme. You hear these prices that they're selling for. Oh, I have, I have three crates of stuff in New York still. I have, I have Maurizio Records, like the Basic Channel, Green Vinyl, yeah. Original Press Pressings, pressings and stuff. Like six copies. X One Hundred One on Trezor, the album. I have like five. Wow. I still have. I have I still you got, have some you stuff. got some uh, rainy day vacation. Yeah, money. yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I keep it. I, you know what? I keep those records for trades. I haven't traded yet, but there's always some old school shit that that comes out that I don't know about that's worth a lot of money. Mm-hmm. So I can like, always hey, just be like, look, you know, have a look, can, have a little look little at this, this list, or a little of that. Yeah, nice. So, are you gonna just leave them there? Or are you gonna just 
kind of I'm holding on to them I don't, you know it's just it's like money in the bank yeah you know, exactly it's just rainy day money interest and goes up in prices it's not going to go down but I'm also that's hot. true well I, I gotta wonder i mean i think some of this discogs bubble will pop at some point you know i mean like you know well, well I, and a lot of records are getting repressed now too. all the chicago stuff which thankfully for me because i can't afford 50 bucks a record but all the all that stuff's coming out on like Shy Wax and these labels, like old Gemini and yes. Dion. Like they just redid um, Dion Does Disco, and that record was going for a shitload of money. And now I got it for ten bucks, which is cool. Yeah, there's a lot of a lot of the represses and a lot of those bootlegs from England that they just make them. They try to copy and copy the labels. So they do actually a good job. The only yeah. way you can really tell is if you look at the handwriting on the Matrix, you know, because yeah. it's a unique hand signature, like your signature, my signature. And if you see an original, you can see that the handwriting is not the same as on the, yep. on the plates then, right? Yeah, but, you got to wonder how much of it is legitimate. But no, I mean, it was never legitimate. There was a lot of unlegitimate stuff. Like, I don't know about at the moment, but maybe five years back. Oh, yeah, for sure. You know, like these uh, Jackmaster Earl Rabbit records and uh, all this weird, like um, Chuck Roberts, uh, Ecstasy, uh, You're in My House, yep. in My House Music. They bootlegged all that stuff. And, it, and you could really, you have to really look to see if they're bootlegs. Yeah. To, but I mean, even when the original pressing came out, there's still so many stories about people screwing each other over. It's like, that's just a rabbit hole to go down. Yeah, yeah, you know yeah, what I mean? Yeah. But, you know, some of it's weird. Like, because, for example, there's been a few uh, Gemini represses of old EPs and uh, albums and stuff. And uh, somebody did an article on the guy who was part of an article and uh, apparently, like, he's kind of, like, homeless and randomly somewhere out in the streets yeah, yeah, in Chicago. Yeah, Spencer Kinsey. Yeah, and it's like, all right, well, I know for a fact this guy didn't check his fucking email and say, yeah, I'm approving these represses, so... Right, I know, I know. He's He's got mental mental issues, so... Yeah, you know, I mean, who knows? Maybe it's cleared up with his family and the, the money's put away, so I don't want to, like, call someone out right now, but it just... Some of this stuff makes me wonder, like... What's what's legit and what isn't? You know what I mean? Yeah. So uh, that that conversation has actually come up with some other people about about that specific record. Actually, oh really? He's actually, getting the money. Oh, yeah. okay. So it's not I've just heard. Me I don't know. I've stuff. heard people say that they don't think he is. I don't know. It's uh, yeah. You know, it's like uh, when they put Armando records out. Where does that money go to? Is this yeah. go to his parent family? Or not his parents, but maybe his family or whatever. Yeah. Or, you, know, you don't know. You know. You just hope that it gets to the right place. You know yeah, what I yeah. mean? And. But, you know, it's interesting. We were, you were saying just now about, like, uh, we're talking about records and prices. I had sold off, you know, I had 10,000 records up until about three years ago. I needed to make some space in my storage where my records are at. And uh, I decided to get rid of 3,000 things. But I, I actually sat there and, like, went record for record and listened and said, is this something I'm ever going to play again? Is it something I'm ever going to listen to at home? And I was able to get rid of 3,000 records. And you know, I, as I would get rid of every record, I was looking on Discogs because, you know, you don't want to give up, like, really good records yeah. for, that it might be worth $50, you know, 50 euros, whatever, uh, when you sell them to a shop. But I wound up selling them to three – I sold 2,000 records to, to A1 in New York, which Ron Morelli from mm-hmm. Lives used yeah. to be uh, the manager in. And, I, you know, it was I, I made a good deal with him. I, You know, there were some records that really weren't worth anything. They were worth a dollar, two dollars. Records that I thought that would be worth a lot of money. Yeah. I was actually surprised. Like, really? I got to part with this record for fucking two dollars? Yeah. But then there were other records that were, like, worth thirty dollars that I didn't even think. I'm like, why is this record worth thirty bucks when this record's better? Yeah. And it's not really any less rare. And I really know. Tight, especially man. Especially for you know, 90s like, stuff. Somebody I know, starts playing it and there was only 2,000 copies and, you know. 
fucking 1500 of them are busted up now so yeah you know but i i was there in the 90s and i had the shop so i'm really good with the old stuff from that period is not records didn't get by me and i know it's rare and i know it was hard mm-hmm. to get back then and what went out of print quick and what you know what the demand was and i was kind of shocked i was like wow it was like setting some records aside i was finding records that were a hundred dollars i was like this record's a hundred fucking dollars oh, yeah, yeah. you know i'm like what the fuck actually the gemini <laughs> out one of the gemini records on uh on communicate a fucking sounds record that yeah. he did it's worth is a hundred bucks i was like Shit, really crazy wow you know i kept that because i liked the record anyway but you know I, as i was going through the records I, I i was astonished and then so i wound up you know in the long run i gave ron some some records like i had an oteca promo that was kind of worth a bit of money on 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 warp so i threw some of those in as the deal sweetener you know because yeah, got, you know the shop's got to make some money you got to yeah, give yeah. them some big bigger selling records so in the end i got like three dollars a record but I gave I I gave up some really good stuff. I had also a lot of good industrial stuff that I had doubles on from the shop. And, you make uh, it it's it, it's a fair deal. Yeah. Put it that way, right? It was a, a deal to wash my hands on the records and not have to sit and box them up because I I'm I think I'm past that point in my life where I ever want to have to box a fucking. I record think up you've and go done enough of that. I've done enough. It's <laughs> just something I don't want to do. My girlfriend does the band camp thing for me. That's cool. Me, I don't want to stick a record in a box. I don't want to fill custom papers out. I don't want to do it anymore. I've done that. I'm done. I'm past that. <laughs> I'm not better than anybody that does that. I've just done it already. Done. I just don't want to do it anymore. That part That's of your it. life is over. over. You own the shop. You sold it That's off. It. It's over. Yeah. Nice. Well, then, I guess uh, we got through a lot of stuff. I'm going to head out to dinner here shortly, okay. so I'm going to cut it off. No problem. It's been a good one having you on. Thanks, Dustin, for is having me Is there anything you want to plug or get off your chest real quick? No, I'm good. All right, man. Well, thank you very much, and talk to you soon. Take care. Bye-bye.